Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts. Achtung, achtung. Welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Lockdown 2 special editions. Uh, as the nation battens down its hatches, we take a nautical turn today, don't we, James? Yeah, we do. Um, and I'm very excited about this because we've got Stephen Fisher uh, today. And Steve is a fine fellow. Uh, he's an archaeologist, actually. Um, and that means he can do everything from kind of, you know, pre-Stone Age to Iron Age to Anglo-Saxon to whatever. But his speciality is, without doubt, the Second World War. Uh, And he's also, as well as being an archaeologist, he's also a bit of a historian um, and has done an awful lot of work on British naval coastal forces in the Second World War. And I think, you know, if you think of sort of coastal commanders is the kind of sort of forgotten... um, section of the RAF coastal forces are probably for the forgotten section of the Royal Navy and they're fantastic and I never quite understand why we're so uninterested in them because they have incredibly cool fast boats that kind of hurtle about kind of machine gunning and cannoning and and sending up firing torpedoes and stuff I mean what's not to like anyway so Steve knows <laughs> everything there is now about it. He knows certainly a lot more than I do or you and I do and I should also say that um uh, I've, I've got to know Steve because he put me right on a few points when I was doing all that kind of D-Day stuff with Gold Beach and the Sherwood yeah. Rangers and has yeah. proved unbelievably helpful in helping me to kind of piece together 
actually what did happen, and particularly with the naval picture, which we've since discussed on the on the pod and everything. So, Steve, um, welcome and um, thanks for coming on. Good morning. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm very happy to be here. Now, now, now Stephen, um, uh, archaeology of the Second World War. I mean, obviously, people's immediate um, thought when you, they hear the word archaeology is people sort of, you know, d- dusting dirt off a, off a sandal that's been found in a, <laughs> in a burial pit in Wiltshire, usually. Um, and uh, or in or in the middle of nowhere in Scotland, and they're dusting it off, and they hold the sandal up to the sunshine in gloves now, I expect, or in a plastic <laughs> bag, and go right. I know everything about this civilization off the strength of this sandal. <laughs> you, 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 you know, it's, it's recent. I mean, well, thank you. Good, good, good. My my first impression is correct. No, I, I, I'm fascinated because because one of the one of the questions that um, uh, I think we tussle with sometimes is at what point does a thing become history you know when is when does history start with what's the tipping point between you know is it 1980 or is it and when so when does archaeology start in that respect because archaeology always you know i think people generally think archaeology is like the old stuff or the it's burial mounds right (laughs) it's yeah it's burial mounds and it's not it's not kings and queens it's the stuff found in their toilet rather than (laughs) (laughs) i hope i'm not trashing your roman oyster you know what i mean oh no but you're hitting me with quite a deep question very early in the morning um (laughs) archaeology oh crikey i mean if you were to try and put a time frame on archaeology then you know realistically it's rubbish and it's stuff that has been discarded and that we then have to find again and and establish the context of its use to be able to learn from it so stuff that happened yesterday even the stuff i threw away yesterday we can't really call that archaeology that's just disposed stuff but if in 50 years we then excavated a a, a rubbish pit or a uh you know a waste site and found stuff like computer games which has been done um then that starts to become archaeology because we're learning from it anew things that we didn't know before. And I suppose um, uh, 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 war, Second World War archaeology, because the, because a war essentially is an ephemeral temporary event that then that then you you go to great pains to actually um, uh, uh, move on from. Uh, you know, you rebuild, you you clear minefields, you you clear up the the, the dead, the detritus, and you try and restore. The, the you know the, the status quo ante, don't you? That the, the archaeology, Second World War archaeology, must be quite a tricky thing because because battlefields, like I said, they get cleared up. And, and battlefields are a very difficult site to to investigate archaeology, but you can learn an awful lot from them. You can you can learn about uh, sort of infantry positions based on the number of shells and and shot that you might find in a particular area and you can say well there's clearly a concentration of people here that's been done at battlefields like uh, Islawanda, where they've been able to yes. establish where the defenses most likely were based on the the archaeology that's left from the infantry who were in those various positions um and then like you say people always try and clear this stuff away and that goes for the the sites that weren't battlefields either so all of the infrastructure behind those in the uk airfields hundreds of them across the country that have all been largely leveled and the concrete removed to provide hardcore for road building and that sort of thing so what we're left with are yeah the the remains of these sites but investigating them can still tell us an awful lot that we haven't really considered because james has a question straight away oh no yeah no no, i do i do well i would i know but i didn't want to interrupt you your flow oh that's all right um, no i was just going to say a very very good friend of mine owns a former RAF um airfield um uh, croft on tees uh, which was uh, part of six group um, and uh, occupied by 
Canadian Royal Canadian Air Force in the Second World War. They're flying Halifaxes out of there. Uh, and at the end of the war, the RAF didn't want it anymore, so they just basically handed it back to the landowner. Um, and there was tons and tons of stuff, you know, stores, um, old engines, bits and pieces, stuff that they didn't need anymore. So basically they just buried it all in a quarry and filled it in. And my friend has has had kind of, you know, a little bit of sort of, you know, ground-penetrating radar work done on it. And there it all is. You know, it's absolutely clear as day that it's all just sat there. I yes, and that happens an awful lot. There's sites in the New Forest where we know that um, large remains were just sort of bulldozed into a pit and covered over. Um, not munitions, fortunately. This is mainly sort of uh, maintenance equipment and that sort of thing, spares and stuff that, that really wasn't going to have any future use. And so the, the best means to get rid of it was just to, to bury it. And, yeah, th- this is a an, an oft-seen um, sort of artefact that's left over from the Second World War in sites in the UK. And a lot of them are sometimes more speculative than factual. Um, we quite often hear of people who want to dig up something because they've been told that there's a lot of stuff there and in reality there was very, very little. And and that happens abroad as well. I and mean, the Spitfires in Burma, of course, are a yes, good the, example which of is, that. Yeah, the, the reductio ad absurdum of, the, of this idea is the, the, buried, the 24 buried Spitfires in Burma, um, which is a fascinating story in its own right, how that idea got legs. But um, so... so um, when, when, so when James is, for instance, researching uh, these D-Day photos, and he uh, and you get you get involved, what are you bringing to the um, conversation? There is it is it partly archaeological, partly that you've been following the the the, the naval aspect of stuff. What, because obviously, if you're you're looking at things from the naval point of view, you know how that works and the tides and all this joined up stuff that. Um, you know, I think James is a bit of a landlubber at heart. Um, and, uh... How dare you? <laughs> it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> Where, how does that all link together with with, with archaeology? How, how, you know, what, what, uh, what, what's, the, what's the bridge there? Well, the, the interest in the photos and the work that James has been doing on the show with Germany was um, mainly to do with my most recent bit of archaeological work, which was landing craft tank 7074, which is the the D-Day landing craft that's just been restored and has just opened outside the D-Day story in Portsmouth. Um, It's not open at the moment, unfortunately. Uh, But my job was to record the archaeology of that vessel during its restoration because the vessel itself, although it's less than 80 years old, has gone through considerable changes over time. And one of the important things that we wanted to do was document that history and the changes that were made to it. So we have an authoritative record of that that vessel and its life basically um and there's also as part of that i've been researching its story and 7074 is actually very closely linked to the work james is doing because 24 hours after it uh the sherwood rangers landed on gold beach 7074 landed in exactly the same place and the chaos that was happening on gold jig beach on that day is part of the reason that 7074 beached later she was supposed to arrive on land on the same day very late in the evening on d-day but because of everything that was happening on jig beach the the entire story there relates to her then having to arrive a lot later so um yeah so my interest really when james was looking at this story i could see things in the photos i could see information and i knew stuff in the back of my head straight away i said oh well that's that's why that happened and and this and so forth and and yeah i 
I approach a lot of my D-Day studies from the maritime aspect. And it's not just James who's a landlubber. I think most of our narrative of D-Day really <laughs> is the infantry arrive on the beaches and then the battle moves inland. And that's where you tend to follow people. And then the whole three-month campaign, the Battle of Normandy, is all about Goodwood and and Cobra and that sort of thing. And what's happening at sea in the English Channel for those three months is largely forgotten. And really, there was actually a, a three-month battle in the English Channel, um, which doesn't really get the same sort of attention. Doesn't and get any attention at all, basically. Well, no. But, but, but you Steve, say, just before... say I'm... largely... Largely ignored. I mean, uh, roundly uh, left out. Yeah, I, I would say so. And I'd, I'd love to talk about that in a second, but I would also like to just, you know, from your perspective, from a kind of sort of a naval history and naval archaeological point of view, just how challenging was it having to deal with A, the enemy, but B, those conditions? You know, what, what, what was it? Sort of Gale Force 4, was it, or something like that? Or, or what, what was it? What. How bad was it on the morning of D-Day? And, and how does that manifest itself when you're try- you've got a very, very carefully orchestrated plan? You've got absolutely tons of minefields you've got to work your way through. Because I was thinking, well, another, you know, I've said it before on this, this pod, you know, one of the, uh, the great kind of unsung stories of D-Day is the minesweeping operation. You know, that's another thing. But, but, you know, if you're in a landing craft, how does that affect you? You've got kind of winds, you've got, you know, waves, you've got white horses, you've got the... the, the um, uh, beach ob- obstacles to get through. You've got a lack of visibility. I mean, presumably, when this is being planned, the image in everyone's mind is kind of summer, balmy skies, balmy seas. You know, all the training exercises they've done have been pretty much on kind of calm, balmy seas. Then suddenly they're having to deal with this. Uh, yeah, I've, it, it was an in, immensely challenging operation from the naval perspective, and it was roughly a sea state four on the morning of D-Day, which is enough to complicate matters. And, and as we've discussed, James, it meant that in most instances the DD tanks weren't swum because that yeah. sea state is just a bit too rough for, for those tanks. And they had learnt from Operation Smash in April, where uh, the the DD tanks were floated out in just off pool and most of them well not most of them but several of them sank in very similar conditions to what you're seeing on d-day so the decision for most of them to launch much much closer to the shore up to 300 yards in some instances was definitely the right one but because you have this strong wind coming from the west and the tide pushing everything to the east on d-day itself that makes it immensely difficult as well and for the landing craft tank, um, they have their own problems, being flat-bottomed and um, being a, a real pain to steer, even in the very best of conditions, even in a flat sea uh, with no wind at all. In ideal conditions, a landing craft tank had to steer 20 degrees to starboard to maintain a straight line because of because, the nature of its design. Because they, they don't draw very much so that they can go right up to a beach. And as anyone who's been dinghy sailing know, if you forget to put the centreboard in, and there's any wind at all, you go, you go whichever way the wind's blowing. You're just, you just skid across the top of the water because you're not drawing uh, at all. And, and, and so that's, that's what they're dealing with. Yes, even in the most perfect conditions, they would be dealing with very cumbersome vessels that are meant to be on a beach. They're not really meant to be at sea. They're, they're terrible boats. They are literally... I think um, one of the 
the names that they're given in the Second World War was cigar boxes because they were just sort of boxes and like you say, no keel, no draft, and even turning them meant that the the stern swung out far further than the bow, and you had to sort of skid them around the corner if you were to turn them. So they they were difficult beasts to operate. Bear in mind on D-Day, you then have this added factor of um, slightly stronger weather. You also have the enemy, um, which are confusing things. You've crossed the English Channel at night with no signalling lights, precious little navigational aid. And you have to try and maintain a formation so that you can arrive at the, the lowering position, which is seven or eight miles offshore, where all of the fleets gathered and then prepared to go in in their, their various stages into the beach. And that whole movement across the English Channel was carefully orchestrated to make sure that everyone arrives at the right place at the right time. And of course, that didn't always go to plan. It was very successful, but there were problems. And of course, if one person gets out of position, that affects everyone else. Um, and then you also have the, the added problem of the infantry, who, although you've been training with for months and practicing all of these landings, when you actually get to D-Day itself, they suddenly decide, oh, well, we better bring a few more of those and a little bit more kit. And very slowly, you start to overload your landing craft. And they had tremendous problems of that. The, the landing craft tank Mark V, which is a very shallow draft as it was, several of those just shipped far too much water crossing the English Channel, and many of them were delayed getting across. Um, and the landing craft tank, uh, this 13th, 18th Hussars A Squadron, um, who landed on Sword Beach. A Squadron was the, the wading unit, so not the DD swimming tanks. This was the follow-up um, squadron. They loaded on their landing craft, which is the oh, 41st LCT flotilla at Gosport, and they went out to their, their berth area in the Solent, and a few hours later they had to come back in because the infantry and the tank squadron had bought too much stuff, and two of the LCTs were horrendously overloaded, so they actually had to summon up another landing craft, a spare landing craft, to take all of this extra stuff. Wow. So, yeah, the... You have all of these factors all compiling the, the enemy, the sea state, the navigation and, and the infantry that you're carrying as well, all making it that little bit harder. Uh, and when you add all of that together, it makes it incredibly difficult. But I mean, you, you, you said everyone earlier on. Um, how many ships is everyone? <laughs> uh, right. So for D-Day, the, the size of the entire Allied fleet was about 7000 vessels. And about 4,000 of those were landing craft of various sizes and types. Uh, landing craft tank, um, the, you know, the big ones at 7074 is an example of, there were just over 800 of them. Minor landing craft like the, the British LCA or the, the US Higgins boats, uh, there were ooh, nearly 2,000 of, of those all told. Uh, not all of them landed <clears throat> on the morning of D-Day itself. Many of them were the ferry service that sailed over in the afternoon or the evening so that they could run this uh, ship-to-shore service for all of the, the big offshore ships. Um, but yeah, the size of the fleet that was gathered for D-Day was absolutely immense. And yeah, the vast majority of it is is landing craft, which of course is why... 4,127, so I think. Uh, yes, possibly. I, I don't have the number in front of me. I'll take your, yeah. your word for it. But yes, it, it's, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's about it, that. Yeah, and it was 1,213 warships. So, I mean, you know, you're, you're talking about a, just a just unbelievably vast fleet. But of course, as we've discussed before, Al, it's still not enough. It's not enough yeah. to, to, to make yes. it comfortable and easy and straightforward. But then it... Given. But- but then it never is enough, is it? That, no, that's it the never army. Is. It never an is. army. An army demand is always, and you've just pointed this out quite perfectly, Stephen. The army always wanted that little bit extra. They always yes. that little, want that little yeah. bit more. 
And it, and the the navy isn't a ferry service. The navy is it's a, it's a tactical delivery system. It's not it's not a ferry for the army to you know to stuff the boot of their car with duty free. And get, if you see what I mean. No, that is perfectly put because many people sort of see the Royal Navy's role on D Day as being a ferry that just had this job to land the army where they demanded, but. This was a combined operation, and really the, the leader in any combined operation, especially on D-Day, is the Royal Navy and the, the, the maritime element. And they were so much more than just this delivery service. Now, now the thing that springs to mind when you say this, uh, what, 4,000 landing craft, this is an awful lot of trained bodies, an awful lot of men being trained to be able to handle is extremely difficult to uh, uh, navigate craft what does the navy do to, to to because this is i mean i've just been reading the memoir of the bloke who um this guy george chatterton who ran the glider pilot regiment and you know he had to find pilots who um th- were soldiers as well and how he ran that and how he integrated that and he needed thousands of people to do this job quite clearly you know how many coxswains do you need for this how do you train these people how do you practice in what's obviously a, a really skilled uh, job of navigation, uh, steering these ships. It was a, a huge logistical challenge for the Royal Navy to, to do this. They only invented landing craft tank at the very start of the war, and we only had a very small sort of uh, cadre of, of landing craft assault and minor landing craft before the war. So there was hardly anyone trained to operate these. And as they start building them, of course, they need to get crews. And obviously, officers are passing through HMS King Alfred down at uh, Brighton and and ratings are being trained the the war service ratings and so they would just literally take anyone and just assign them to landing craft and many people had absolutely no idea what a landing craft was and then they just suddenly found themselves assigned to one either as an officer or, or as a rating and they they had to learn pretty much for themselves so uh there's a, a brilliant memoir by um He's a famous actor he played the russian ambassador in um dr strangelove and uh he he was assigned to landing craft very much at the last minute, um, having just been trained as an officer. And he didn't know what a landing craft was. And it wasn't until he actually saw the vessel with the number on that he'd been assigned to that he realised what these vessels were. And he, he had no training before he was made a first officer. And then he took command of a landing craft very, very quickly. And he, he was still finding his way around how to operate them when he went off to Dieppe in 1942. Um, so... There was no proper training facility, really, for these officers. Uh, Peter Bull, that was his name, Peter Bull, very famous actor. Um, his book, his memoir, To See in a Sieve, is absolutely fantastic. To See in uh, a Sieve, okay, I have to look that yeah. up. <laughs> and um, so the Royal Navy, as they expanded, they quickly realised this, and so they created a number of combined operations and amphibious training bases, mainly up in Scotland, uh, with names like HMS Dinosaur, HMS Brontosaurus, that sort of thing. And there they would group together officers and ratings and train them in amphibious operations and how to operate landing craft. And they would practice navigation on bicycles, on golf courses, so they could learn formation sailing and that sort of thing. And then they would put to sea in, in the landing craft and actually learn how to operate them. And uh, it, it was difficult. And up in the Scottish coastline, at least they were sheltered from the weather a little bit, but sometimes you could get quite strong winds blowing up um, and and they had all sorts of, of problems of getting accustomed to these vessels that really, and this is the, the most important thing, they weren't seaworthy. <laughs> they were terrible boats to try and sail. 
Um, and really, yeah, it was it was a case of just getting as many men through these establishments as you could. But of course, there weren't many volunteers because landing craft. I love them, but they they don't elicit the same amount of glamour as, say, the coastal forces, motor torpedo boats, and or destroyers or battleships. And um, Lord Louis Mountbatten, of course, was head of combined operations. He actually went on a bit of a campaign to try and get more officers to actually choose combined operations and landing craft in particular after they'd commissioned, uh, after their training, to, to try and get more men into the, the service and get them trained up from 1942 onwards so that there would be a, a good amount of officers and crew who could operate these landing craft. But even then, um, because of the, the expansion of Operation Overlords and when Montgomery came along in January 1944 and said, right, we need to widen the front, we need to increase the, the landing scale uh, and the number of divisions that will land on D-Day, then you need more vessels to do that. That's why landing craft like 7074 were built, but also you needed to rush through officers for training in that as well. And many of the, the crews who sailed on D-Day hadn't seen action before and you know, were still very new at, at operating landing craft. So, And then yeah, you the, add in C-State 4 and yes. the conditions and going by night and an enemy, and suddenly that's, that's a pretty challenging exercise, isn't it? Yes, but the, the Navy pulled it off, and this is one of the, the things that's often sort of overlooked. I wouldn't say it's forgotten, but people don't really think about it, is that D-Day from the naval perspective was an enormous success. From the logistical end in the UK, from gathering the entire invasion force mm. in all of the ports, getting all of the troops and the tanks on board in six days, um, you know, the logistics of getting 150,000 yeah. men onto all of their landing craft and then getting those landing craft in the right berths so they can all sail at the right time and cross the English Channel so they can all arrive off of their beaches in the correct place in the correct order. It's an absolutely incredible piece of work. And, and they really did do it. There were some, you know, some formations ended up out of position. And obviously at Utah, they landed a mile down the coast from where they were supposed to be. But you know, these are my... By and large, they land exactly where they should on pretty much on the right time, don't they? I mean, yes. it is amazing. Um, yeah. And you, you sort of think, you know, if they could do that then in a pre-analogue day, you know, why can't we all have vaccines a bit more quickly? But anyway, that's another thing. But there is a, up but, to do it. But, but I think also the, the thing that's been, um, that, that, that we've been talking through, Stephen, and I found really, really interesting, is the knock-on effect that not releasing the DD tanks at 7,000 yards out has on that operation. Because, of course, there is a contingency plan. And... The whole point in the original plan is that the DD tanks are launched at 7,000 yards and they are the first onto the beach, followed by the Averys, you know, those who are going to sort of clear the beach obstacles and all the rest of it. And then the infantry. And the only people before the tanks are the, the, the naval divers who are kind of going underneath and kind of taking off those obstacles. No. But, but, no, but in no, terms... No. 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 <laughs> Have I got that wrong? <laughs> we'll, but anyway, they we'll discuss there. that later. The, the, the landing okay. craft obstacle clearance units didn't land ahead of the invasion force, but we, we, we can chat about that another time. Okay, well, okay. Well, forget <laughs> Let's not worry about that. But my point is, my point is, is that there is a knock-on effect from from not releasing the DDs at seven thousand yards. Yes, there is, and um, it it creates delays elsewhere. And one of the reasons that all of these contingency plans were in place was to prevent there being um, further delays uh, being caused by adjusting the plan. Um, a jig, of course, the knock-on effect is that um, when the the Avries arrive uh, and the landing craft obstacle clearance units, there, there's no support for them and they're very, very quickly knocked out by the um, 
the 77mm at WN37, the strong point at the Hamel. And the, I mean, there's, there's many reasons that everything went wrong at Jig Beach, the tide pushing everyone to the, the east and sweeping them further down the beach from where they were meant to be, the fact that the DDs weren't there, um, the fact that the naval bombardment hadn't really had any impact on WN37. But the knock-on effect is that Jig Beach, which was supposed to be 50% of the landing area on Gold Beach on D-Day, uh, everything was supposed to go into Jig. Jig Red was hardly going to be used. Instead, everything has to go to Jig Red up until oh, four, four or five o'clock in the afternoon. And that wasn't an ideal beach. Uh, there was more clay there. They hadn't prepared as many exits. Inland from there is very boggy and marshy, so there weren't as many decent roads to then get up out of the, the beach area. Um, and the impact of that, of course, is a massive delay in the advance of the forces into the the main country behind the beaches so yeah that it's not just the decision to not launch the dd tanks there's many other factors as well but it's interesting to see how all of that uh adds together jig beach of all of the the commonwealth beaches jig green was was probably the the one that went least according to plan yeah but but, but, but what but is striking go on, go on you say uh, well, I was going to say, what is striking is that despite that, they still managed to, to win it over. They still managed to achieve their objectives, get in land, capture Aramanche, and the Navy was still able to supply them across a, a very uh, impractical beach. But what I was thinking about more was the fact that, that... So the problems of not releasing your DDs at 7,000 yards is... The whole point is what you don't want is your LCTs getting too close to the coast. You don't want them much closer than 7,000 yards because they're big. They're kind of nearly 50 metres long. And they'll get in the way of the subsequent landing, of the LCAs then coming through with the infantry and everything else if they're too close. And you've got all these beached obstacles and you've got to make these, these channels through the beached obstacles to get to the beach. So the flip side of that is that instead of then leading being in the vanguard, your DD tanks then have to take a slip third. So it then becomes Avery's going in first, followed by the infantry, then followed by the tanks. And what the LCTs then have to do is do a big circle to port to create the space to allow the LCAs to then come through instead because they're all lined up. So you've got the LCTs first, then you've got the LCAs. And and that has that huge knock-on effect. Uh, and, you know, I just hadn't appreciated that. And to be able to kind of make that decision and for everyone to kind of pretty much know what they're supposed to do in that contingency and act on it and basically pull it off despite the kind of winds, despite the, the the pushing of the tide and all the rest of it, I think is absolutely phenomenal. I mean, you know, I, I take your, your broader point there, Steve, which is that what is achieved on, on D-Day by the naval forces is just absolutely stupendously impressive. Yeah, it's it's um, it's an incredible feat of of organisation and, and then carrying out that, that plan uh, so successfully. One of the things that I often see in memoirs from landing craft crew and, and other naval crew, in fact, destroy captains and coastal forces as well, is the sheer amount of paperwork they were given uh, just before the invasion happened with the, the naval plan. Um, and it was volumes of stuff. And I've, I've got most of it. Um, Force S probably has the most complete ones. And there's just several 
independent volumes of uh, the plan for the bombardment, the plan for the follow-up bombardment, um, the embarkation plan, the sailing plan, the assault plan, all three ways of the assault plan, the ferry service that will follow them up, where everyone is supposed to report to next, specific operations and tasks for the ferry service and the, the support landing craft that will then adopt a position to protect the beachhead from the, the east. Um, and then, on top of that, they were also given a file of amendments where you know changes in the plan had then become necessary and rather than reprint everything they just gave them several sheets of extra information and a lot of the the memoirs recount how they then had to sit there and cut these out and stick them into place in the correct place in the orders to overwrite previous orders or they just scribbled them out and i've got some of copies of some of these where people have gone through a green pen and crossed large sections out or they said oh, plus two hours here and that sort of thing and you have to pay attention to these as well because the plan is there and typed, but you really have to look at the amendments where they suddenly say, ah, oh, plus 35 minutes, and that changes absolutely everything. Of course um, it does, yeah. And they all had to sit there for hours at a time, and many officers, they said that they roped in their first officer against orders. They needed that logistical help to actually get through this mass of paperwork to understand what they were going to have to do. And so they all had to do this, and, and that's why the plan worked because they all knew what the contingency was going to be. They all knew what the plan might do and how it might flex and what they would need to do to fit into it. And, and that's why it's so successful. We've got to take a short break right now. We'll see you in a tick. Welcome back to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. James Holland and I are talking to Stephen Fisher about the Royal Navy and D-Day. Who are the key players in in putting this together, the in organising it? Because it's, I mean, it, it sounds to me uh, uh, like almost like a sort of bureaucratic exercise as much as a military one. Um, are there lots of are there lots of uh, you know anonymous people in the food chain that delivers that set of orders to a captain or or or, 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 or a commander of a boat? You know that. Or is there is there a central office issuing this stuff, or is it a thing that that trickles down? Uh, it, it was a huge administrative exercise. I mean, in in terms of personalities, at the very top, of course, you have Admiral Ramsey, um, who's more famous for Dunkirk, but he planned the whole naval aspect of, of Overlord as well, and um, very successfully. And then he has his staff beneath him. Then you have um, other officers. Cunningham was the first Sea Lord at the time, and underneath him, I forget the officer's name, but the person who's responsible for making sure there are enough landing craft and that sort of thing. Then you have the independent task forces. There's Force S for Sword Beach, J for Juno, G for Gold. Um, and in the Commonwealth, you have Force L, the follow-up, immediate follow-up wave, which 7074 was part of. They all have their own senior commanders as well. Um, Talbot of Force S, uh, the officer who was on um, Achilles at the Battle of the River Plate. I forget his name off the top of my head now, but he was the commander of Force L. Um, they have their staffs who then draw up their orders, which of course are compounded by the fact that they have to try and operate to the requirements of the army that they're landing. Uh, and they then create landing tables um, to try and make sure that the infantry loads that they want, they say, right, we want a platoon to land over here, we want several tanks and a, a flail tank to land over here. So the, the Navy then have to try and 
achieve those loads of independent vessels and assign them to formations to make sure that all of the infantry can be landed where they want to be in the right order and in the right time, they draw up these very complicated landing tables that detail the independent load of each individual landing craft at D-Day. So there are tables and tables of this stuff. Each one is each specific landing craft's independent load. So it might have 25 men from an infantry regiment, two Royal Engineers, a bulldozer, a motorbike, a jeep, uh, and a naval observer and a press reporter, that sort of thing. Um, and then they're all assigned this very, very complicated thing called the landing table index number, which is the code number, which is then the code number of that infantry formation that will be on that boat and that landing table index number is then assigned to a landing craft and everyone just has to remember that number so the infantry know which vessel to get onto and then that vessel will take them to where they're supposed to come off the, the landing craft onto the beach and that as a logistical exercise yeah the personalities unfortunately I've, i'm working on this <laughs> trying to dig out more about this huge logistical exercise and how it was achieved and the staffs that actually achieved it because it's a fascinating background to the whole mm. of operation overlord but yeah they had considerable staffs who were then plotting all of this and then typing up the orders and then distributing those to the i mean just imagine if you just craft. typed up all the orders and then and then you have to make a last minute change Exactly. Yes, and that's Can why you just the landing. This, please. I mean, <laughs> that's why the landing table index numbers were used as well. <laughs> so rather than say, right, all of you infantry from ten different units, you're all going to get on LCT one two three. If LCT one two three becomes unoperational uh, two weeks before D Day, if it's sunk or if its engines blow out or if it gets assigned yes. somewhere else, you'd have to tell all of those infantry from ten different regiments. Oh, we've changed the landing craft. Now you need to get onto landing craft four five six. What you do is you give them this landing table index number, this code number, and then if LCT one two three is no longer available, you just, you just assign, assign number. the number to a different landing craft, and and so it, it works brilliantly. The problem I and and other naval researchers have is that there is no master list of which landing craft had which landing table index numbers so you have to piece it together by looking at orders and reports and mm. loading tables and stuff which is a, a fascinating exercise <laughs> it's, it's not always it's possible amazing um, i mean i'm not gonna I, lie my, my head is hurting just thinking about all this <laughs> well yeah yeah i mean i i'm so allergic to paperwork <laughs> me too personal life um, um uh, the the army though um Obviously, uh, there must be big committee meetings with the army going, well, ideally, you know, we want to put we want to put as much of the division down as we can uh, early doors. And the Navy saying, well, well, you can't really that's not really going to happen. How much how much to and fro is there? Or do the Navy say this is what we can do? So fit to it. Or is it the army saying this is what we want to do? And the Navy you know, who's the dog and who's wagging the tail? <laughs> well, by now, of course, Combined Operations has been running successfully for a couple of years. And so this, these are the sort of administrative issues that have been dealt with many times before in the planning for operations. So they're, they're used to knowing the capabilities of the, the other side. The, the Navy know what the Army can achieve and the Army have a good idea of what the Navy can achieve. And so when they're starting to formulate their plans, they already have a rough idea of what is actually achievable. Um, and so there's, there, there does have to be a lot of to and fro between both sides as to, to what actually can be done. So at Sword Beach, for instance, um, Sword Beach was the smallest beach on D-Day because mm. it was needed 
from a strategic sense to capture the, the eastern flank of the landing area and to secure Wiestrom and and obviously the the canals and reinforce the, um, the parachute division across the other side. Uh, but the the area itself is not very useful for landing because there are offshore shoals and which meant that there's only a very narrow bit of beach that could be used it's only just over a mile wide and so there for instance the landing is much slower because rather than having a two brigade front which you had at Juno or Gold Beach where you have two brigades landing at the same time on either side of the beach so at Gold you have Jig Beach and you have King Beach and at Juno you have Mike Beach and Nan Beach at Sword you only have Queen Beach and it's a one brigade front that can land. And that was a, a physical restriction. So there's nothing the army could do about it. And there's nothing the navy could do about it. There just wasn't sufficient beach to land the infantry as quickly as they wanted to be landed. Yeah. Uh, and that, that just had to be accepted. And then, of course, the other constraining factor is uh, the availability of landing craft. And the, the Royal Navy and, and Britain as, a, as an industry had done great work in getting sufficient landing craft to make sure that the operation could actually be achieved. But even then, there's still limits on how many they could supply. And there are only just enough landing craft to land all of the divisions that did land on D-Day. But even so, you still have to restrain yourself to practical areas of landing. And so that's why the beaches are the bits that they are and you know people look at a, a map of normandy and they assume that you had infantry landing all the way between wistrom and and utah beach and really what you have is is tiny select areas of beach within those larger zones where the actual landings yeah. were carried out yes a series of schwerpunkts basically yes. um, the, 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 i mean that's very interesting if you could only get one brigade ashore then you're not going to take Caen day one, are you? I mean, uh, if, if we're going to get into the, the Caen controversy. Yes, but, but again, but, that is, but that's, that's Miles Dempsey's decision. And, 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 of course, it's trumped by the greater need to secure the flanks. Yes, of course. But because, but because of think, course, Caen is a very nice thing to, to, to take on D-Day, yeah. but, it, but it doesn't trump the most important thing, which but, is that the invasion doesn't it, fail. But if you want a simple a simple explanation, they're only putting one brigade down there. Where elsewhere two are going, you know. There's a there's a there's a y- yes, straight, it, it, straight up a reason, you know. It is yes, a big ex- ex- except there is there is yeah, but yeah. but there is form Thanks, of course. Stephen. But there is form, you know, for for going ten miles inland and capturing a city the previous yeah, year in, yeah. in in Sicily. But well, 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 which brings me to my next question: How much? Because you said <clears> uh, combined ops will be going a couple of years. How much of a sort of feedback loop is there going on from? Because after all, the, 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 if you if you watch uh, a World War Two in color, then they'll say after the, <laughs> all the lessons of the Dieppe raid were digested into D Day, and of course that well, ex- yes, you you raise an eyebrow. Those those not uh, who can't see Stephen um, uh, raise an eyebrow. Dieppe Dieppe gets fed into the sort of you know the the, the orange squash account of events. But in the meantime, you've had Sicily, which is a you've had Torch, you've had Sicily, Salerno, Anzio. A lot. They keep the Allies keep doing this. The Western Allies keep doing this because they have to, because there's no other way of there's no other way of prosecuting this war is by doing doing descents, landings, combined ops. How much of a feedback loop is there? Is is it a, a very very busy one? Because after all, the Walcheren then happens three months later. Which is kind of the same deal, isn't it? Four months later, it's the kind of the same deal. Big amphibious landing, you know, big combined operations. How how much of that is going on? 
Um, looking through some of the paperwork I've seen from combined operations, there's an awful lot of learning from the previous operations. And one of the, the fascinating things about D-Day in particular is the number of reports that were filed afterwards um, from all aspects of it. So there were inspectors who were tasked to go onto the beach on the afternoon of D-Day itself and note the impact of the, uh, the artillery bombardment, for instance, to note the effectiveness of... Uh, the sleds that were towed by some of the tanks with extra ammunition on them, porpoises they were called, I think, porpoises, yes. Um, uh, the, uh, the effect of the AVREs, how well they were able to actually clear the beach and to investigate wrecks of things like DD tanks um, and damage that had been sustained to them, the, the effect of the bobbins that laid the carpets on the beach and whether or not they had actually deployed properly. So there's, there's always this learning going on by people who were sent on D-Day itself specifically to record these things so that they could learn from them. And there's, there's some brilliant reports that were filed afterwards uh, discussing the effect of various aspects of, of the operation, primarily bombardment, but also yeah, how well the, the infantry and the, the specialised Hobart's funnies have been able to deploy. And yeah, there, there's definite intent to learn as much as possible from everything that is carried out. And those you do see those obviously being reapplied in, in follow-up operations. There's going to be greater impact on D-Day from Operation Torch, Husky you know, uh, um, Salerno than there is from Dieppe, surely? Yes, absolutely. And most of the the planning staff involved in Husky are then uh, put into D-Day as well. Dieppe is often used as an example, I think purely because of its geographical location. It was the first amphibious attack of, of that scale on the northwest European coast, which, of course, everyone knew, even from 1941 onwards, was going to be the, the second front. And so it's always had that that link geographically but really from in terms of amphibious operations the, the real learning proving ground was the Mediterranean and that's where more lessons came in and of course Dieppe had this, this very convoluted origin as a, a sort of uh, commando raid in scale uh, there was never any intention to stay there and so the logistics of organising that sort of operation are completely different because you don't have follow-up waves, you don't have supply, you don't have any of, of that sort of thing. So the lessons that could be learnt from it were limited uh, and the, the main ones that are drawn from it are the problems of shingle beaches and um, and, and that sort of thing. So Dieppe's uh, impact on, on Overlord is, is nowhere near as significant as the operations that are going on in the Med. Yeah, I mean, how could it be? Because, uh, uh, like you say, it it is a, it is a raid, whatever that means. But it's a it, it's a raid. It's not an invasion. Yeah. And the the, the the qualitative difference. They're not laying uh, uh, pipeline to supply with fuel for, and all that. Yeah. You know the paraphernalia of D Day that get that we talk about an awful lot. The whole follow up, um, the build up behind yeah. it, and the need to then yeah. resupply that beachhead was fifty percent of the Royal Navy's planning for D Day, um, and none of that is involved in Dieppe at all. It's it's literally just land them and then remove them. So at the start of all this, you said there's the, the three month battle in the English Channel that the Navy fight. That you know that that we talk about the the Overlord battle that climaxes of course at the Falaise Gap and all that what's the th- what is this battle what happens well what's the- <laughs> it, that's the thing nobody nobody hears of it it doesn't have a, a catchy name I would call it the Battle of Seine Bay um, personally or, or maybe the Battle of the English Channel but there there is this uh, important operation to maintain the beachhead to supply the, the armies in Normandy <clears throat> of course you everyone even after you've captured the beaches even after D-Day everyone that then 
builds up in the Normandy beachhead still has to be transported by sea. You still need to get them across. And the beachhead itself, in terms of the overall coast of France, is quite narrow. It's between Wistrom and, and Utah, and then obviously they press up and they capture Cherbourg after a couple of weeks. But it's still a very small bit of the coast. And obviously that only creates a very small relatively speaking, front line on land between the, the British and American armies against the Germans. But in terms of the maritime uh, control of the seas, the Germans still have their bases all the way down through um, all the way down the coast of Bordeaux and obviously all the way up into the North Sea through to the, the Dutch and, and Belgian coast as well. And they have Le Havre. And they have fairly significant naval forces that can be brought to bear on this invasion force. I wouldn't say tremendous because for the past two years, the Royal Navy had been clearing the English Channel with sustained operations to to wreak havoc on the, the, the Kriegsmarine's influence on the English Channel. But they still have forces that can be brought to bear to attack uh, quite vulnerable convoys of landing craft that are constantly shuttling back and forth across the English Channel, carrying quite vital troops. And in particular, they have S-boats, which were called E-boats in the war, but uh, I prefer S-boats, which is uh, short for Schnellboat. Uh, and these can obviously come out at night to make lightning attacks on convoys and then go back into their, their ports. And then you also have um, the Germans started operating midget submarines, sort of manned torpedoes, uh, small explosive boats. Uh, and they also have aircraft that can lay mines all across the, the main um, uh, swept mine routes through the, the, the main minefields that the convoys are following. So there's this continual campaign to protect those vital convoys and to keep control of the English Channel. Uh, in particular, the, one of the main sort of areas of, of battle was something called the Trout Line, which is the eastern flank of Sword Beach. And every night, all of the landing craft support that had operated on D-Day, so the landing craft gun, the landing craft flak, uh, those sorts of vessels, plus minesweepers, coastal forces, destroyers and frigates are all assigned to this Trout Line, which is essentially just a line running north-south east of Sword Beach, trying to prevent German forces from coming through from the Havre and attacking the anchorage area and the convoys. And at the so same it's time, basically like a protective barrier. It's like a kind yes, of, essentially, like a yeah, it's a screen uh, <clears throat> yeah. to, to screen, intercept exactly. any forces that might come through. Then you also have S-boats operating, operating from Cherbourg. You have submarines as well that are trying mm. to intercept these convoys further north in the English Channel. And this was a a constantly fought battle. There were engagements almost every night between our coastal forces in particular um, and, and their coastal forces, plus some of them coming from the North Sea, trying to get through the English Channel, coming from uh, Boulogne, uh, not Boulogne, um, yeah, Boulogne, uh, and... Uh, and trying to engage our convoys. And they, they get through on several occasions. They do manage to sink landing ships and landing craft, uh, pieces of mulberry on occasion as well. Um, but we had to do our very, very best to protect these so we could build up those forces in the beachhead in Normandy. And this this is primarily a three-month campaign until the breakout happens, the Allies are able to sweep round, liberate the Havre. After Cherbourg is captured, that reduces some of the strain as well. But it's really not until September, when the forces are sweeping up through mainland Europe, that the English Channel is uh, abandoned 
by the Kriegsmarine and they move up into the North Sea. But then, of course, that battle to sustain the infantry just happens over by Antwerp instead. And you have S-boat attacks on our East Coast convoys again, um, starting up in late 1944 and early 1945 and attacking the convoys that are running from the Thames estuary over to Antwerp. So it's a constant campaign. People often think that once you get onto the French continent, that's it, that's where the battlefront is. But it, the English Channel and the North Sea were always a battleground, even when we have a presence on mainland Europe. It was the same in the First World War as well, um, with the submarine campaign then. People think that the front line is the, the trench system of the Western Front, but really for many people, including the infantry, when they crossed over the English Channel, the front line is, is immediately there the moment their ship puts to sea, because straight away they are at risk from being sunk by, by marauding U-boats. Yeah, it's amazing. And those, those, those midgets German submarines are quite something else, aren't they? I mean, they're spectacularly mm. inhumane, uh, um, the Bieber and all the rest of it, but, yeah. but very effective because of their smallness. Yes, um, they could Hard easily pick out. They're, they're, they're almost kamikaze, aren't they? They're not quite yeah. kamikaze. They even created there. dummies as well, which is just the little glass dome floating above the surface, and they would just float those in and let them be carried with the tide as a way of distracting our forces. And um, and and then they would sail the real ones whilst our, our, our naval forces are distracted. Gosh, and then there's the weather, of course. So that because because. The the other the other battle is with the is with the weather because the storm that follows D Day um, uh, you know, uh, that destroys the American Mulberry or damages the American Mulberry. What does the navy? Th- I mean, the navy has that in that in this great big binder, and in the event of terrible weather, this is what we're going to do. Surely, I mean, after all, that must be a, a thing every navy ha- has contingency for is the weather going wrong on them because that's that's the sea. Yeah, I, I think they, they probably had plans for rough weather occasions from long before D-Day anyway. Um, what you see happen during the, the Great Storm less than two weeks after D-Day is a lot of <clears> convoys <throat> just don't sail um, because it's just too dangerous. Um, but even so, some of the bigger ships were still crossing the English Channel. Um, if one thing, it did mean that there was some respite from the enemy because the enemy weren't putting to sea either. But of course, it <laughs> makes it incredibly dangerous just facing the weather and that's always a constant threat for any ship at sea um but yes obviously that that heavily impacted on the build-up and uh it, it didn't i mean the mean... number of vessels lost in in that great storm is still absolutely huge i mean they're all small craft of course but it's i can't remember if it's 400 or 800 but it's but it's a really significant number it is most of them were lost actually on the normandy coast where they yeah. they couldn't anchor they couldn't beach because the conditions were just far too rough you'd think that they'd be safest if they just ran up to the beach and, and got off as quickly as possible but trying to actually beach a landing craft in a, a heavy storm and a heavy swell on the beach would probably destroy the landing craft and, and drown you at the same time so most of them had to head out to sea and and just drive into the weather and, and try and survive that way by steering into it and crossing the waves the ones that suffered the most were the ones that were actually in mulberry a and the storm broke free the the offshore bombardon uh floating breakwaters and then these piled into the piers which hadn't been anchored sufficiently and these broke free and then these smashed up against some of the landing craft that were at anchor and just crushed them against the beach and what you see in the photographs of omaha after the the storm is is really piles of landing craft that have just been smashed against the beach four or five deep sometimes and are hemmed in place by these uh breakwater uh, sorry these piers that have just lost all control god 
Oh, this stuff. I mean, you know, uh, it's happened again, James. We realise we know nothing about something. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you know, I know more than amazing. I do, but... And we haven't I even talked absolute... about coastal forces. No, we haven't. No. <laughs> well, well, we'll get we'll get you back, Stephen, to talk about coastal forces, because um, uh, this is, I mean, this is all such food for thought. I mean, one of the things that, I mean, you know, you touched on it earlier, Jim, that, um, you know, why can't we get uh, vaccines out? The sheer organisational muscle that the British warfare state possesses in, in uh, the summer of 1944 is quite astounding. And then when you eat... You could argue that then post-war, the great British malaise is terrible management. If you're a declinist, if you have the declinist view of British history, the one thing we're really bad is, is managing stuff as a country. Well, what, what's, what's happened in the interim? Because quite clearly, this is a, an absolute triumph of managerial, bureaucratic um, muscle, isn't it? And, and yet it's like that evaporates or something. I mean, I'm not, I'm it's not trying to make a It's absolutely phenomenal. It, it I'm really, not trying really to make is mind-bogglingly phenomenal. I'm not trying to make a political point here either. It's just, you look at, the, it's it's jaw-dropping what's achieved. And even just the giant pools of typists, I'm thinking of. You know, all the all the girls clattering away at their typewriters, typing up these orders and not making any mistakes. And it's just, it's just absolutely extraordinary. Well, it, it is. is. And, and Steve, it's been, it's been fascinating to hear you talk about it so so cogently and lucidly about you know and explain it and and you know Al's absolutely right I mean you know I've you know when I did my my work on Normandy you know I made a I tried to make a big point about the the huge contribution of the navy and that it was wrong how it's been kind of you know played down and and largely ignored and all the rest of it but just talking to you today it sort of made me realize that you know I could have gone quite a quite a stage further with this <laughs> and, it, and, it, and, and it has made me me think again. I mean, you know, blimey, what was achieved was just phenomenal. I mean, absolutely phenomenal. I mean, we've obviously been talking about the British sector, but but everything we've been saying about the British sector is, can be, you know, said exactly the same for, for what's going on at Omaha and, and Utah, of which, yeah. you know, obviously a number of the, the, the landing craft are British as well there. But but my point is, it is, it is an incredible joint allied combined operations effort albeit one that's led by the royal navy yes um, and it, it really is and it's such a success as well like like al says it's a triumph of of organization and planning and and then the very effective carrying out of the operation yeah. and yeah I, but i mean just going back to your earlier point al i suppose one of the the reasons that we can't pull that off quite so successfully today is of course this was total war and everything was directed towards this effort to the detriment of many other aspects of of everyday life and you know we can't maintain that sort of of attitude indefinitely and so you know now our attention is steered on different things and i'm not going to go into politics but we are having to see a return to that level of organization now but we are finding our feet all over again because the past 75 years we haven't had to do that in any way near the same level well well yes after all because the second world war um you know uh may all of the key players were extremely experienced first world war people so yes you know we've been the, the british state had sort of been around the Around the Mulberry Bush once already, so to speak. Yes, and, um, exactly. And and was picking up a lot of where it left off. I mean, which is part of the problem of how the thing goes to start with. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> after all, but by 1944, it's 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 the, the most incredible um, organisational 
entity, isn't it? The British state. It's it's. Re- yep. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. Well, it I is, think it's yeah. a point well made, Steve. To be honest, um, that, that's a very fair point, and I'm sure they will get their, themselves sorted and cut through the red tape and get the vaccines yeah. out very quickly. Um, but um, we have means about when the next pa- when the next pandemic happens, we'll be ready for it. Is what you yeah, say? Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Twenty years time when we got when we got chicken flu. Um, but uh, combined with swine flu, apparently that's uh, that's the thing that everyone's worried about is when the two oh. mix. Anyway, let's oh, worry about God. that right now. Um, Steve, we haven't talked about coastal forces, but um, it would be wonderful to get you back on at a, yeah. a, another time to talk about that because I'm conscious Absolutely. that is More another a rich vein to. Uh, it is. It's another. To, to it's another into. aspect of the war that I, I think is sadly overlooked, and and one that I'm I'm always very happy to talk about. Obviously, but like you said earlier, um, James, it it is a. It's a surprise that it doesn't receive more attention than it does because you have this very dynamic um, aspect of fast boats armed with small guns and fast torpedoes. Sleek. It's Spitfires of the boats. Sea, Steve. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And it's, it really is a fascinating story. So, yeah, I'd, I'd be happy to come back on and tell you all about that another time. Okay, well, Stephen Fisher, Wonderful. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank, thanks for joining us, Stephen. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you again soon. Cheerio. Cheerio.